welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast and welcome to a new year. This is our first full-length episode of 2021 and we're doing something a bit different in this episode. It's essentially we're just calling it an unscripted episode. This was one where I sat down uh, with my buddy Emery from By Land and truly hit record with no agenda. Um, Emery's just one of those guys that I personally enjoy talking to and we always get into some interesting thoughts, topics, and I always learn something uh, from my discussions with Emery and I figured you would too. So that's what we're doing in this episode is truly just unscripted, no agenda, see where it takes us conversation. Uh, We end up talking about gear, conservation, mindset, Emery's experience as a through hiker, as well as a hunter, bridging gaps between different outdoor niches, if you will, and different communities, uh, and really just a lot in here. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this one. If this is something you enjoy, this kind of unscripted, casual, see where this takes us conversation format, let us know. And it's something that we'll do more of in the future. Before we dive into the conversation, be sure to check out the links in the show description uh, to learn more about Emery and buy land. He has some great content, including a podcast, a website uh, with good gear review articles and other tips and um, things that will help you be a better backpacker, including a backpacking course, which you'll hear us talk about at the end of the show as well. So check out the links in the show description and appreciate you guys tuning in. As always, you can send us any questions, comments, or feedback to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And let's dive into this conversation with my good buddy, Emery. So, Emery, you... I feel like you're somewhat of a gear guy. Like you stay up to yeah. date on gear, but I don't feel yeah. like you are obsessed with gear. Like I feel like True. you have gear in its proper place, if you will. Oh, um, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like this is a funny question to ask you, but I'm really curious. If if you had like money is no object, buy a gear purchase like today, like what's that one thing you're like, man, if I had the money, I would totally what? Get what? Does it, can it be, um, 18s, 18 power binoculars? All right. Perfect. hundred percent blew my mind this last year. I borrowed them from Corey Ford and it was a game changer. Like I, I remember texting him. I was like, I'm in trouble because <laughs> these things are amazing. Like, yeah. And maybe, you know, I'm sure it's, these were vortex, the, the UHDs, yep. uh, but you know, for me buying gear, I kind of have, I'm pretty dialed in. I feel like I, I don't really have much else that I could possibly need. Everything's really expensive. Like I want cameras or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so I have two rules for buying gear for myself. It's either have to, it either has to move the needle substantially mm-hmm. or it has to be really fun. Mm. Uh, and I have to know the difference. Like, hey, this thing's not going to move the needle for me. <laughs> you know, a solo, a solo tent is a solo tent is a solo tent. Yeah. Uh, so if I know it's not going to move the needle, then it has to be fun. But man, 18s talk about. I, I, they kind of hit both, check both boxes for me. Yeah. Well, so, let's come back to the 18s. But what do you mean by be fun? You just mean like you yeah, admit like, it's somewhat like I don't want to say frivolous, but just gets you excited, makes you want to get out more. What do you mean by yeah. fun? Yeah, man, backpacking and hunting 
gear is so fun, man. Like a new jacket is fun. Even if you have 10 of them, they're fun. Camping gear is... Tell my wife. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it's true, man. Like no matter how you look at it, we can call each other gear nerds all day long and you're obsessed with gear or whatever. But at the end of the day, the reason why people are is because it's fun. And it to me, gear symbolizes the unlocking of some sort of adventure right mm -hmm. like i look at a backpack and i'm like whoa what could i do with that where could i go with that and i have these like th they inspire gear should inspire and so that's kind of how i look at, at gear a lot of times so if i know that it's not gonna move the needle dude let me just have fun with it and let me know that like i'm buying this solo set solo tent because it's fun or i'm gonna i'm gonna buy this new mid layer because it's fun and i want to have this mid layer you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so yeah i kind of it keeps me balanced as well you know yeah that makes sense yeah. so with the 18s would you like you were using those on a deer hunt right this fall yeah yeah would you in future hunts have 18s and something smaller eight or tens to handhold or does it just depend on where and when you're hunting like what because that's something with me it's like 18s of Yes, they bridge that gap between binocular and spotter, but mm -hmm. they're legit so big and they so are. hard to handhold just from a, like, you just can't be stable on them. Like, you have to tripod mount them. Absolutely. So then I'm like, God, do you, I mean, I can see certain hunts where you would just do the vast majority of your glassing from a tripod and maybe you don't need something handheld. But that, to me, that's always like making that logic jump in my head and i think that's part of the problem is it's me trying to make logic jump in my head because i haven't spent much time behind them like in the field to truly get a feel for it yeah uh well so the setup that i had was a pair of eights so because i bought eights because where i hunt it's just in the I, i'm in the timber a lot so having anything more powerful than that i think eights and tens were like when i was looking at them they're like hey do this if you hunt the timber so i always have eights on my chest but I was going into this spot where I knew that I wanted a glass and I'm like, I don't really have a spotter. Like I've tried spotters in the past. And to me, they were just not enjoyable for me to use. And I'm not counting, you know, how big an animal is or, mm -hmm. you know, and really for the most part where I'm hunting at my specific areas, spotters are just too much. Like I'm trying to cover more ground than what a spotter can, um, at least efficiently in my brain. And I know everyone has, I'm sure that expert spotters out there better yeah. than me. You just want to retain a high field of view and not yeah. just have magnification. Exactly. Yeah. And so the 18s, what the, what the 18s allowed me to do is I could glass more detail beyond where my eights could go. So I'd use the eights when I first sat down, I would, I'd kind of do a quick sweep of the area to see if I could see anything. And then I, I put the 18s on a, on a tripod and, and began to do the detailed work and out to, I don't know what the effective range would be of being able to spot an animal. I think everything comes with an asterisk, right? Like, mm -hmm. are you in dense foliage? Are you in wide open terrain? And the, those numbers vary. So like a thousand yeah. yards to someone in like the Great Plains is uh, <laughs> different for someone right. like me. No, I mean, it's, it's what's the vegetation? What's the game? Are they in summer coat, winter coat? Like there's so many variables exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah, so but within 20 minutes, I spotted this this bedded blacktail way down in this in this ravine, like seven, eight hundred yards away, and just his head was poking out. I'm like, 
I pulled up my eights and I was like, yeah, no way. Not happening. Not happening. And I about just fell over. I, I, I looked at the guy I was hunting with and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And those 18s spotted every single deer that we saw that um, those few days. Mm. And it just changed the game. Like, and again, yeah. that's what I mean by checking the boxes. It moved the needle because who knows? What if I would have gone to that same overlook, looked around, you know, put my 18s on a tripod to do some more, or my, my eights to do some more detailed work, but still couldn't see anything because nothing's moving. And I would have moved to the next drainage and I spotted three bucks in the same drainage in yeah. a day and a half. Like, so that's what I mean. Like, it, it, how fun is that? Yeah. Seeing and, animals. Yeah. And just like you said, from an effectiveness, that's moving. The yeah, needle. exactly. Yeah. So I don't know, man, the, the pairing back to your question on w- what I would do going forward. I suppose if I didn't have to do the close up stuff, if I wasn't ever going to be hunting in the timber, I probably wouldn't bring the, the, eight powers because mm-hmm. if all you're doing is looking at a distance uh then you probably don't need them because dude those 18s are really like you said you got to have a tripod you got to have um they're kind of hard to pack around yeah <laughs> like they don't really fit anywhere so i just ended up putting them on the top of my backpack okay on the inside yeah. you know where it's like a spotter could go in the side pockets yep um so yeah they're kind of they're kind of goofy to to uh place in your pack but dude, I was, I would be happy to haul those things around. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was going to be doing some, some glassing. Yeah. No, that's perfect, man. That's a perfect example for sure. You, uh, just yesterday, this is funny because we had this podcast scheduled and, you know, I had zero agenda and then I just happened to see this yesterday. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. I want to hear about this. So you have a, you have your own podcast, the Byland mm-hmm. podcast. And I just saw that you released an episode and it, the title was why hunting yeah. isn't conservation and yeah. why it matters, which is so like, I was like, dang it. He got me. That's, you know, I'm going to say <laughs> clickbait, but I was like, I'm so intrigued now. I want to listen, which this was yesterday afternoon. Yeah. Here we are this morning. I clearly haven't had a chance to listen and I will, yeah. but what's the cliff notes version of that podcast? Like who was the guest? Why is that the title? What's the thought behind that statement? Uh, well, it was clickbait for me as well. I got sent an article by a buddy of mine on Instagram that he sent me this article out of the blue and it was titled, that's the exact title of it. And this is, it's written by this guy, Kevin Bixby. He's been in conservation for 30 years. Uh, he lives in uh, New Mexico. And so I read his article and it's, it, I think it was a way to introduce people to a, to a topic and the whole premise of his article and the podcast was we spent the entire time talking about his article and his views on on conservation it really comes down to he wants he sees a need to begin uh modifying the modern conservation model when it comes to wildlife in the sense that he wants to start including more user groups because right now it's in his in his views it is highly dominated by the hunting industry. And so what that does is it doesn't take into account um, other user groups like wildlife viewers and uh, and that kind of a thing. So he said there's a, been a shift in value structure and there's a really cool, uh, I'll have to send you the, the link to it. In fact, it's in the show notes. There's this survey 
something about America's wildlife values or whatever. So it talks about the the change of wild like value the value that Americans have on wildlife and how it's changed and like where we at where we're at in modern days. And it kind of breaks it down into three different topics, three different crowds. And um, it seems like the values over the last, you know, handful of years, maybe a decade or so, have just morphed into a more middle of the road uh, value structure where, um, how do I put this? I guess animals have this intrinsic intrinsic right to exist and that's becoming more popular. And so people are starting to be more aware of how we're utilizing animals and not, and it's not anti-hunting, it's just a values system shift. Mm. And so um, right now in modern conservation, you know, everyone has heard the conservation um, history and where it came from. And it's really important because hunters were obviously a big part of uh, bringing it back into existence and saving a lot of species. And I think that is widely known. Um, and I'm not the most educated on it, but um, I think it's fairly obvious that that's the case. But to his point, um, he's like, I just basically want to see more of an inclusive um decision-making tree of all user groups instead of having to be solely dominated by um, the hunting industry, if that makes sense. Hmm. So it's really, it's, and it's not anti-hunting because he's, he's a meat hunter himself. Like when he does hunt, it's for meat. And I think Mm -hmm. that resonates with a lot of people. Um, But yeah, it was really fascinating conversation. And and I, I remember when I first reached out to him, I was like, Oh man, what am I going to get on the other end of this? You know, this is the first this is the first time I've ever dabbled in an opposing view of, of what I've always accepted. And recently I started out the podcast with like, I feel like I'm just in receive mode lately. I just want to learn from people. And I feel like I'm mid thirties. <laughs> he's been in conservation for 30 years. He's someone that he's educated in policy. He's educated in biology. Um, how has he come to form his opinions? And I think you know, to the title of the the episode and his article, uh, I think he 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 feels that hunting the the slogan of hunting is conservation is a dangerous slogan because it eliminates a lot of user groups hmm. that should that he believes should have a voice in how wildlife is managed hmm. in the you know in North America. Yeah, yeah, dude, that's like a. <laughs> Again, I have a million thoughts in my head. Wow. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like his title saying hunting is, to say hunting is conservation, uh, I feel is accurate. I I think that's a different statement than saying conservation is hunting, though. And I feel like just a little bit I've heard, maybe that's where he's at, is that Mm -hmm. conservation isn't strictly hunting, right? um, which I can get on board with a bit. But I am on board with hunting is conservation oh 100 percent, yeah because it's proven right it's been a proven right method to to bring animals back into existence or populations yeah and i think the average like that might be old news to you and to me and to people who listen to this podcast but the general public has no idea like the general public does not know that um you know the excise taxes exist they have no idea Mm -hmm on the difference between state and federal management of wildlife that like yeah. they, yeah, the average person, the, the, 
don't want to say average, but like the the majority of the public has no idea. And so I think hunting is conservation. Like, is that may sound like a tired phrase to people in the industry or to hunters, but mm. to the public, I still think that that is a strong, valid, helpful. Oh yeah, statement slash idea to continue to be out there. Oh, totally. Um, and one one thing that's interesting to me when we come to like the benefit of wildlife or the value of wildlife to call it the general public. Like just one thought I had as you were uh, one of many thoughts I had as you were <laughs> discussing that whole thing was like they don't. The public, in a way, is content or may have value on animals, but not wild life. And by that, I mean, mm, yeah, mm -hmm. they don't like, they might think it's really cool to see a deer or to see an elk or what have you. But a lot of people, I'm not saying that they wouldn't care, but they don't care enough to experience that truly in the wild. Right. And yeah. what I mean by that is, like, there's this park. Um, near us that it, it's kind of a crazy deal. It's a county park. It used to be years and years, decades ago, used to be owned by the government and was this land that was set aside for military to test munitions. And so there's literally these bunkers and all kinds of stuff still on this piece of property. And now and has been for decades. I remember driving through this with my grandpa, like when I was three, four, five years old. It's a high fenced area where they have quote unquote wildlife, elk, mm. bison, deer, what have you. And you literally just drive through and you get to see all this wildlife. Um, and people love that. And I think it's a neat thing, mm -hmm. but the people that may value the experience of seeing a bison aren't seeing it in the wild. And so I just think it's really interesting just to think through the, the, the dynamic of mm -hmm. they might value animals, but it's not even truly wildlife or wilderness or call it free range, what have you. Like there's just so many different dynamics to that where I can see like yeah. the general public saying, yes, so of course we should have bison. But it's like, what does that mean to you? <laughs> and what does that mean to a sustainable actual viable public free-range wild herd of bison that's totally two two totally well, different things and i think we're it's so funny one of the goofy things that i find about um some of the the arguments for like wolves and, th and things like that being reintroduced re and i am by no means well read on the topic but i i don't think anytime we compare like well this was a a range that wolves used to live in for, you know, 100, 200 years ago. And this is their natural range. I'm like, yeah, dude, we have fences now. We kind of screwed the pooch. Like, mm. you know, elk used to be, you know, back when Lewis and Clark were coming through, elk were on the plains in droves, right? And when they went into the mountains, they, they starved because the, the elk didn't live in the mountains and the deer weren't really up in the mountains. So, um, we drove them up in there from my understanding, like elk were never really mountainous animals to begin with. And so the, the whole paradigm has shifted. Like you can't just re you can't just say, well, we're going to put wolves into the woods now. <laughs> like <laughs> that's not really how it works. Like you got fences, you have, you know, it's a feeding frenzy for the most part. They're penned in, they're hemmed in. 
they can't really go anywhere. You know, you don't have millions of bison running around anymore um, on the Great Plains. Like the whole dynamic has shifted. So anytime I hear someone being like, well, we, sh- we should just let the wildlife manage themselves. I'm like, yeah, are we going to tear down all the houses and the cities and <laughs> give it all back? I don't really think so. So we kind of have a responsibility to implement the management of wildlife to the best of our abilities based on what we know from the past so we can prevent things from happening again, you know? So yeah, like the reintroduction of wolves, that's a topic that I am a little fascinated with at the moment. I'd like to talk to some, some biologists about it that are experts just to get their, their take on things. Cause I see both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about it, like, you know, I, Kevin and I ended up talking about wolves after the podcast and, and I was just like, man, you know, it's just not the same as what it was. And when you're looking at wildlife with hunting tags and stuff like that, it's, it's a crop, you know, like wildlife is a crop for people. You know, it, it's um, brings in money to fund more wildlife programs. It does a lot of great things and you can't just take that away. It's a, it's a functioning industry. And if wolves are decimating herds, I mean, it's, you have to take it into account. So do they belong? I don't know. I mean, in some manner, I suppose they do, but that's where it kind of comes down to like the value structure and the values of different user groups, right? Like mm-hmm. one value, one value systems, like wolves have a right to exist where they used to exist. All right. Well, hunters have a right to continue pursuing their value system in the values that they, they get out of harvesting their own wild meat. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's so many amazing benefits to hunting on a personal level and a spiritual level um, that non-hunters don't get to experience. Mm-hmm. And it, it'll change someone. I mean, clearly it changes people because they go from like zero hunter to, wow, I'm, I'm dedicated to this thing. I mean, that there's a reason why that happens. Right. And it's not because it's a blood sport. It's because it, it is, it changes your values inside as a human being, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree, man, for sure. It's a weird, like if you look at even the recent um, reintroduction or what's going to be the reintroduction, what's been passed by voting in Colorado of the wolf reintroduction, like it's somewhat to me a scary proposition that you, like on one hand, I'm all for democracy and voting and letting the people be heard. But then on the other hand, when it comes to like really complex issues, you like, I'm not saying that the public can't be trusted, but at the same time in an age where disinformation is so easily spread and then you're making, you have people in, you know, Boulder, Colorado who aren't a rancher who's going to be affected by a wolf reintroduction. Like, of course the person in their living room in Boulder could say, oh yeah, it sounds like a great idea to have wolves in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Like That just seems like a good thing. Like they were here, they should be here, what have you, but not fully understanding the consequences of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, I mean, there's obviously always going to be opposing sides on any issue when it comes to the wolf thing, like one takeaway I have on that, again, I'm not trying to play the expert, don't want to play the expert. And you and I are not here to solve, you know, <laughs> 
wildlife conservation in the United States. That's neither of our places. That, w- that was not on the agenda. For that today? was not on the agenda. No, okay. and I, I can I already hear like that off. <laughs> the emails that are going to come in because we're not fully addressing the topic. That's not what we're trying to do. We're having a conversation. Um, but what like a good example is one takeaway. We did a podcast um, with the fish. I don't want to get his title wrong. Essentially, the Fish and Game Commissioner of Idaho, or assistant, or deputy, or something, what have you, Toby. Um, from Idaho Fish and Game, who has vast experience in Alaska as well as Idaho now. Mm. And one takeaway I had from that podcast, and we discussed Idaho's wolf uh, reintroduction, their management plan, how management has gone, how the wolf population has grown, the effectiveness of wolf hunting. Like that's a good conversation where we touched Mm -hmm. on all those topics with someone who's studied it for decades. Um, But one takeaway I had from that is that wolves are very hard to manage. Like Mm -hmm. the populations are hard to manage. Um, And hunting can only be so effective in doing that because they are Mm. such a great predator. They're so smart. They breed well that the numbers can grow and hunting alone seems to be an insufficient management tool for wolves. Mm -hmm. And so you look at a state like like modern day, like yes, yes, modern time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in modern time. Yeah, yeah, and that, I'm not saying that those are his words. That was a takeaway okay. I had from the conversation, where it's like yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm hearing him say, you know, Idaho Fish and Game. And again, I'm not putting words in his mouth. This is a takeaway I had. I feel like he was saying Idaho Fish and Game is still trying to effectively manage the wolf population, mm-hmm. like in a controlled way. And so when I look at another state coming on board, like Colorado, and saying we are going to reintroduce wolves. It's like, okay, I hope, you know, whether it happens or not, again, I'm not even going to say good or bad. I have my own feelings about it. I'm not here about that. What I'm saying is if it's going to happen, I hope that the planned scaled reintroduction and specifically the management plan for that is very Mm -hmm. well thought out. Yeah. Um, And I would say hopefully conservative because I think it's going to be harder to manage than maybe they anticipate. And maybe I'm not. Yeah, well, I would imagine that in the event that something goes south on that, that it's harder to bring back a population than it is to remove. It would be harder to bring back whatever damage is done. It would take, I, I would assume, m- many generations of elk or deer to come back in the event it goes goes south. And I, I don't know, like back to your point about not having to, we're not here to solve, you know, conservation problems. I, one of my frustrations is that I feel like we're not allowed today to have open conversation and not have it be dialed in perfectly. Yeah. Like it's so yeah, frustrating. <laughs> I was going to give you trouble about that earlier of you having that guy on the podcast and actually letting him talk <laughs> and you being open-minded and there to listen without maybe jumping on and even correcting quote unquote correcting him where you disagreed or what have you like that's such a radical idea these days yeah well it, and it, it it's so funny when i started the when i started byland in the first place one of my ideas was to bri- one of the my core values was to bridge gaps between user groups and at the time and i mentioned this on the podcast at the time it was i had this idea of like a three hiker sitting down across the table from a hunter and trying to find 
common ground, you know, cause to me in my mind, you know, you have a hippie through hiker, you have the, you know, rugged mountain hunter and they might not have anything in, in, in common, but they really do. And so uh, that was one of my goals was to help bridge gaps and like, Hey, we can, we're all in this together. We can learn from each other. And then when I saw this article pop up, I'm like, is it, this is going to ruffle some feathers, even just with the title. Right. But why is that? And I'm not here to ruffle feathers or be clickbait or anything, but I'm here to, I'm here to learn. And, you know, Kevin has a love for wildlife and wild places, just like I do. Like, why shouldn't I be able to sit down with someone who maybe I don't share the same values as him, but we share the same interests and he's in the backcountry as much as I'm in the backcountry. So why shouldn't we have a conversation about it? And why can't we just have a conversation without having to solve the problem? Like we, we can just chat mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and, and that's what it ended up being was, and I, and I, anytime I have a guest on um, who, who goes into a direction, I had one guest that like went into a direction that I was like, whoa, okay. That went high and left like really quick. And it made me really uncomfortable. And I, I was like, should I even put this episode out there? But I was like, yes. I should put it out there because it's, it happened in a conversation and I'm here to, to be a platform for someone to, this person uses the backcountry. This is their value. This is what's concerning to them. And I feel like it's not my role to combat them unless we're in a debate and I'm really bad at debates anyhow. So I'm really, I find myself being really good at learning and, and being inquisitive. So that's what I find my role to be uh, for the time being until I'm like old and I know a lot of things and I can have my own formulated opinions, <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah, I'm just here to learn, dude. I'm here to learn from people that know a lot more about it than me. Um, and who have a dog in the fight as well. And I don't, I, like I said, my, one of my frustrations is to about modern times is that I feel like we have to have this perfect calculated, um, I guess, conversation or opinion so that we don't get jumped on by a pack of wolves online. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I wish we could move past that. Like, yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. The funny thing is though, the people that react that way have probably already turned off this podcast and sent an angry email and didn't hear any of that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's unfortunate because the only way to work through, I, I think the only way to be enlightened is to have the conversation. And whether that's what, where, wherever, which way you end up being enlightened, you have to be able to say things that like make you uncomfortable and, you know, explore different areas. One of the fun things that I've found about learning about areas that I'm uncomfortable with, say the example of, okay, what do anti-hunters believe in? Why do they believe this stuff? Right? Like you should know this, you should know what's on the other side of the fence so that you can, you can begin to address their their concerns and frustrations when you, when you're happen to find yourself in a conversation with someone and it, hopefully the idea would be that it instills those values, those value systems that you originally believed in even more because you now understand the other side, or maybe it loosens them up a little bit and you're like, okay, cool. At least I have an understanding of where this person's coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that's, and engaging with opposing views isn't always a threat to your view or your position. Sometimes it can just mm-hmm. strengthen it. Yeah. And so exactly. it's it's like you just don't have to be afraid of 
opposing views or opposing thoughts. And number one is don't just put people in a box because they share some opposing views yeah. or opposing thoughts. But yeah, yeah even if they do, um, yeah, let that strengthen your position and not just be a threat to it. Yep. And again, you're you're back there with them as, as well. So you might as well um, learn more about who these user groups are, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. And we got deep, Emery. Gosh. <laughs> We, we went from like having talk fun about and spending fake money on gear to like trying to solve the world's problems there for a minute. Dude. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all part of, so that's, what's so funny is it's all part of the, the, it's all part of the experience. Like, yes, we can go from talking about 18s and like, I have another game changing piece of equipment that I can share with you that blew my mind this year. Uh, but it's all freaking connected. Like yeah. it's all connected out there. And so you just have to go with it and see where it goes, man. Yeah. What's the other gear now? You got me all excited. Dude, puffy pants. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the club, man. Oh, I don't know what I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I've been miserable is what I've been. No, I mean, I haven't been using them long, but for the last couple of years, uh, yeah, for sure. I've noticed the value there on certain hunts. Well, here's what I love about them. I picked up a pair of the First Light, whatever that name is, puffy pants, uh, and I got them because I knew I was going to be do, doing glassing and I don't want to purchase myself a, like a 15 degree bag, a mm -hmm. sleeping bag. I just don't want to. Uh, I would never use it very often. And so my thought behind the puffy pants was, cool, I can get my 30 degree bag uh, to be a little warmer if I wear puffy pants and my down jacket. And I can bring them with me when I sit down to glass because a lot of times when I'm hunting blacktail i'm sitting in one spot for a long period of time like doing the ambush style and now apparently i'm doing some glassing so i'm still sitting down and dude talk about a versatile piece of equipment that is again a game changer i was the most comfortable comfortable i've ever been um, in windy rainy cold conditions and then again at night like it, they worked so splendidly <laughs> like i can't even i can't you know, sing their praises enough. And I'm sure puffy pants across the board are great. But for me, you know, the the synthetic kind, just yeah. because it's wet in the in Northwest a lot. Um, dude, yeah. Puffy pants and 18s. That's my, one of my biggest <laughs> best this year, dude. Those yeah. are going to bag anytime it hits October. Yeah. No, for sure. And it's what you said, like, yes, on a cold backpack hunt, but even just camp life, right? Like, yeah, they're, they're super helpful for sure. Yep. And yeah. the guy that I was hunting with, he didn't have puffy pants the first trip we went out. And uh, he was, you know, he got cold a lot faster, um, got colder a lot faster than, than what I did. I was perfectly happy and we had to start moving around because, you know, you, you got to start walking up and down the trail to yeah. try and warm back up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we, had, I know I had them prior to this. I'm trying to think of like a first trip. I know like our caribou hunt in Alaska in 2019 for sure. I mean, we ended up using those a ton. And even if guys have heard that story, I mean, we were stuck in the tent for, I think, 38 hours or something stupid like that. Oh, my gosh. Um, but just, you know, cold, windy. And then even when we went, when we went out glassing, um, having those to throw on. Uh, yeah, even our mm -hmm. recent October, um, our rifle elk hunt, it was like totally moderate, mild during the day. But just like having them back at camp at night um for when we were you know back at the base camp i mean they're just and mm -hmm. as you said i think it's a super solid strategy 
to have those to extend the season of your sleeping system. Um, I mean, we just hit on that. Yeah, we just hit on that recently because someone was asking about how does our sleep system change for cold weather, and my sleeping bag doesn't. Like, I use that 22-degree quilt all year, essentially. I mean, it. you know, even in the summer, just that's one of the benefits of a quilt to me is you just don't have to use it. You can kind of keep it as a blanket or use it as Mm -hmm. minimal as possible. Um, And then I've had that thing down into the upper single digits, and then layering that with, you know, quality sleeping pad. And as you said, a puffy pants, puffy jacket, like it, it gives you a lot of versatility for sure. So you're comfortable in a quilt down below those, in those temperatures? Yeah. I mean, I've had it in, yeah, low teens and upper single digits um, a few times with just the quilt. And one thing I think, I mean, I hesitate to say this is like, unique to just mine but i have a catabatic and one thing i really appreciate on theirs is uh the attachment system and Mm -hmm. so they they basically have two you know thin cords that go around your sleeping pad and then clips on the quilt that attach to that and there's two positions of the clip that attach around the cord and in the first Mm -hmm. position the clip will slide along the cord which is great if you're you know mobile tossing and turning i do that a lot but you can, because the quilt can essentially move, you can wake up with a draft. The second position locks the quilt to a fixed position on the cord attachment. So I can kind of lock it towards almost under me, wrapping just a little bit, or at least mm-hmm. like wrapping just under, excuse me, the sides, and literally just go all night and no drafts. It has a good draft collar up top as well. Um, hmm. So yeah, with you know a jacket and insulation, Sometimes that's, you know, merino wool long johns on the bottom. Sometimes that's puffy pants on the bottom. Um, but I've definitely taken it down below its temp rating for sure. That's interesting because I I have a 20-degree quilt. And I've used it. I use it during the summer. But for some reason, man, I just can't. I like sleeping bags. <laughs> like yeah. I'm not bothered by the restriction of them. Um, I, I feel nice and cozy in a sleeping bag. I don't really mind being in one. And anytime I use that quilt, I just find myself, yeah, like drafty. And I I don't like the idea of having that lashing stuff. I don't know if I'm going to be restricted. I might as well be in a bag, I guess. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm I'm just curious, like everyone has their own way of doing stuff. And for me, I feel like even though it's a 20 degree bag, technically, I, if it's going to get down in freezing, for some reason, I would just rather be in a bag. And it's, this is like a, a topic that do whatever works for you, right? Like if, for sure. And it's hard, it's hard for people to, to, to not listen to what everyone's saying. Cause you remember when like the sleeping quilt craze was like, you got to get a quilt. Mm-hmm. It's going to change your life. It could, it might change your life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It might, it didn't really change mine. Yeah. <clears throat> like I was happy in a bag, but that you just have to, I don't know if it were, if it's working for you, then it's great. But if you're like uncomfortable at night, like sleeping quilts are great for people that don't like to feel restricted. So that is going to change the game for someone. Yep. If you're like me and you're like, dude, I really like my sleeping bag. Yeah. Then you're going to waste like 250, 300 bucks on it. Right. <laughs> Most likely put yeah. that money towards your next 18s. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I think the, the benefit of a quilt isn't, because it's like the coolest latest thing or like just even the idea of oh yeah it's you know lighter for the warmth because with a sleeping bag you're just laying on insulation that's wasted and you know clearly you're an idiot if you're laying on insulation that's wasted (laughs) like that's not how i look at it 
Um, for me, that's I all think, I think about at night, man. Is yeah. Every time I'm in that bag, I just think about that insulation that's just crushed. You just can't <laughs> sleep because you're going. I am so inefficient right now. Oh, this inefficiency is just killing me. I can't sleep. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, for me, yeah. The for me, the quilt, like the two main things that I found to be a true benefit, and the reason I've stuck with it like I said, year round essentially is number one is that versatility. Like I can take a 22 degree quilt and sleep in the teens with layers, or I can literally go on a summer camping trip where it's only going to get down to like 55 at night. And essentially it's just in the tent with me, you know, and I like might throw half of it over my midsection or something, you know, and it's harder to do that with a sleeping bag. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh yeah. And then even if you are laying on a sleeping bag with it open, Yes, the insulation underneath you is compressed and not as effective, but it's still providing warmth. And so in warm right. weather, it's like I'd wake up sweating, you know, just from yeah. what I'm laying on. Yeah. Um, so number one, the versatility. And the number two is I am a fairly called mobile active sleeper. I just sleep on my side and my back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'll be on my right side and then my left side and my back and then kind of like rotisserie through the night essentially um, <laughs> rotisserie sleeper. yeah i'm a rotisserie sleeper so with a uh, traditional sleeping bag that often means i'm like rolling off of my sleeping pad or what have you and then there has been like hybrid i've used hybrid i'll call i'll call it hybrid like i field tested um some stuff from nemo before it was released and then used it for a bit after it was released but they basically came out with yes it's a sleeping bag but the whole bottom, there's no insulation. And instead, there's essentially a sleeve for your sleeping pad. And I think mm-hmm. Big Agnes has some similar-ish stuff, right? So it's kind of this combination of it's not fully open like a quilt. Yes, there's material around you 360 degrees. But the material on the bottom is essentially just a, some sort of sleeve or some sort of attachment for your pad mm-hmm. and not insulation. And so that's cool, too. Like, you can... Mm-hmm you know, essentially be attached to the sleeping pad, not be rolling off the sleeping pad in the night, what have you. So, hmm. and then of course there's other, like with sleeping pads, when I used a sleeping bag and I was mobile and got tired of falling off, I would take seam sealer and then oh, basically put that, like yeah. dots on my sleeping pad. Did that um, work? Just, yeah, it works a little bit. It helps. Like you can do it. I've done it top and bottom. Um, you know, create like either seam sealer or just any sort of like kind of silicone and make little lines or dots where you're just creating a grippy surface. And if you do that on the top, it can help your sleeping bag kind of stay positioned on the pad and not slide off. And then the same thing if you're using uh, any sort of shelter with like a slick floor and then mm-hmm. you wind up in the less than ideal tent spot where it's not flat mm-hmm. and you're prone to sliding, do that same thing with the bottom of your sleeping pad. And even though you might be on somewhat of a you know incline, decline, side hill, your pad's not going to be as prone to like literally yeah. sliding to the edge of the tent. So, um, man, you'd think that they would just put little grippies on the bottom of you. You think they'd just put that on there because yeah. that's a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> like, not a lot of flat camping spots out there. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I never. That's interesting. I don't know why. Maybe somebody will hear it now and do it and become it's a billionaire. Speaking of um, sliding off pads, the guy I was hunting with, uh, he's probably he'll probably listen to this episode and he'll probably get a kick out of it. So we we woke up the in the morning and he was like, "Man, I was sliding off my pad all night long." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, dude, I just we were sleeping in a, a Cimarron, so seek outside Cimarron, so no mm-hmm. floor." 
And I was like, oh yeah, dude, before I went to bed, I just scooped this dirt under my, under my pad. Cause we were both kind of sleeping on a little bit of an incline. And he's like, he looked at me. He's like, you son of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> I made a flat spot. He's like, <laughs> he's like <laughs> I guess that's just experience. We were cracking up about it. Yeah. Man, Cause it's like, you, you learn these little tricks over the, over the years of like, okay, well this looks a little, uh, loose dirt right here. Let me just build myself a little, little lip here and I'll, I'll just be nice and cozy, man. So funny. Yeah. It's funny though. Those are the things like you probably realized that one day did it and it probably wasn't too conscious. Yeah. And then it's just like you overlook sharing that or thinking through it or the yeah. fact that you even do it. I mean, you don't think like, Oh, this is like a pro tip because I've learned this because I've been doing this for, you know, five plus years. Right. So you're just like, yeah. it just becomes something you do. Dude, that's a really good point, man. It's so funny. There's no real advanced tips and techniques out there. It's just stuff you learn eventually. Yeah. You know, like there's no secret, but that's what's so frustrating about learning all this stuff is that like the people that, that when you already know it, you forget that you didn't know it. Exactly. And it's yeah, so hard to to get back in that mindset of like, what do you mean you need a sleeping pad? That's just for comfort, right? Mm-hmm. you're like well technically yeah <laughs> it's hard to get back in that mindset yeah yeah i mean that's the something that i've wrestled with with doing podcast episodes of like these very experienced very uh successful hunters is like pulling that stuff out of them what makes them yeah. successful and they're you know a lot of times it's like i just I do my thing, you know, but it's like, okay, well, what is that thing? What are those steps? What are those little yeah, things? What's the lessons you've learned? And a lot of that just, you know, you do learn by experience. And when you do, yes, sometimes there are these aha moments of, mm-hmm. I used to do this and clearly that was stupid. And now I do this and clearly that's a much better yeah. approach. There, that happens, but there, I think so much of, the experience, the wisdom, the learning is just like accumulative, like almost you soak it in yeah, and yeah. it then becomes more intuitive. And so it's because it's much more intuitive to you now and it's it's happened over this process of experience, mm-hmm. there isn't the before and the after. There's just the, the, now. <laughs> the now and the yeah. five years ago yeah. And breaking that down and like teasing that out or being able to communicate that on, you know, an, a, a podcast or an article or just a, a discussion with a new hunter. Mm-hmm. There's so much in there that would be helpful, but that is hard to pull out and then put words to because it's just become part of you and part of your process and part of your experience. So let me ask you this. Would You're not you... allowed to ask questions, Emery. This is not your podcast. <laughs> I was already on your podcast, and you could have asked me that question at that point. Okay, fine. No. Uh, so, do you, if you had to do it all over again, would you want to learn those things the hard way and really understand them and know how important they are, or would you rather just know it up front? I guess, and I guess it's along the spectrum, but. Um, where do you find your value at? Like in the fact yeah. that you those things along the way from, and maybe a couple things from people from time to time. You say that like there's this past tense, like I actually know what I'm doing now. Like, would <laughs> no. you, <laughs> now that you've arrived, Mark, would you have congratulations? To, yeah. Um, no, I mean, it, it, yeah, for sure. Learning by experience. I think the, the best 
Yes, learning by experience. And then the, what my mind immediately goes to, what I was thinking through there was both learning by experience on my own as well as learning by experience because of an opportunity to mm-hmm. hunt with or observe someone that was further yeah. ahead than I am. And I think both are valuable. Yeah. Um, I mean, to go back into how I somehow ended up working for EXO and having a podcast was a weird story. But to go back 10 years ago, none of that was on the radar. And I was literally just a kid in Missouri trying to learn how to hunt elk out West. And at that time there weren't podcasts. There wasn't the university of elk hunting online course. There wasn't all these great things Mm -hmm. that are there now. And I think all those things are truly great, but I don't regret at all like fumbling, you know, and like not having those resources and, and doing a lot of different ways of research. Um, it, it would just look much different if I was at my quote unquote starting point now than, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years ago or whenever that was. But so, yeah, I think I value the experience, but yeah, learning hard lessons on your own are valuable, but then they sink in real well, they sink in really well, but then it is truly, like I don't take for granted the times that I've, gotten either hunt with or just even hike with like even you know people on the death hike and stuff like that like yeah. just being with people who have uh different experiences more experiences um all that like chatting with them in person or observing things they do um that's always super valuable too and that's that's part of what you know i, I feel for some guys who just don't i mean we hear from people all the time who are either adult onset hunters and or maybe still younger guys, but just don't have someone to get into hunting with or to get into the type of hunting that they want to do and don't have someone to do that with. And I've, I've been there, done that. Yeah. Um, and I think because I did that on my own to an extent, it helped me value more the opportunities when I then had experiences to do that with others, if that makes sense. No, totally. Yeah. Dude, it's so funny. I'm finding myself having to reestablish, uh, reestablish or uh, redefine my relationship with backpacking and just the outdoors and hunting and everything now that I have a family. Because you talked about, you know, being that guy that's just trying to learn and soak up as much knowledge and then being, you know, there's a lot of people that are frustrated. Well, I, I want to go out West or I want to try this thing, but I don't have anyone to go with. That is the biggest hurdle, right? And I and I personally worked on myself a lot to get to the point where I was cool <laughs> mentally mm-hmm. coming out alone and hiking in, in the dark. And like, you know, you have to do a lot of personal work to be able to do that. Some people are naturally gifted at being like stoic uh, in the woods. I was not one of those people like it's intense being out there. There's a lot on the, on the line, you know, you're by yourself. You don't have anyone to rely on. You're making all the plans yourself. And it took me a while to get up there. And then, you know, you hike the PCT and you're like, dude, unlocked, like the kingdom's unlocked for me and I'm comfortable and I I have the confidence going forward. And then I'm like, what adventures await for me, you know, going, going forward. And then, you know, I'm done with the PCT, get married, have a kid, have another kid. And I'm like, this whole thing's different now. Like all the work that I did, it's not for nothing. It's just not it's not going in the direction that I assumed it would, but I, it, it, does that make sense? Like yeah. I assumed that all the work that I'd done would lead me up to these like epic adventures, but 
I would much more prefer to to have an epic adventure walking a mile with my two-year-old than on my own doing something epic. I like that idea as well, but it's just changed for me. And I, I'm still trying to, uh, I, not, I'm not wrestling with it. I'm just trying to understand the shift in my priorities of the backcountry, backcountry priorities, I guess. Yeah. That makes sense. No, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I know where you're coming from. That shows up for me in big ways and small ways. Um, it, it's part of the reason that I, I like having big trips like on the calendar pre-planned yeah. it gives me something to look forward to something to work towards what have you and then i know like literally months in advance yeah like, that time set aside like yeah. i'm i'm going to idaho and going on this elk hunt i'm going to alaska and doing this hunt and i, I think when i have that and it's months in advance and I know that my wife knows that the kid knows that like we're all on the same page. I said the kid. I meant to say the kids like hey, the kid. <laughs> <laughs> my kids do have names too. Um, <laughs> but like that, that clear like separation. Yep. Is actually really helpful to me. Um, as weird as that might sound, it's easier for me to go to Alaska for a week than it is to leave home frequently for smaller periods of time to like say whitetail hunt so like even this week this past weekend's a perfect example we had like a second rifle it's like an antlerless only season uh and i was like oh yeah I'll, you know i'm gonna get out uh it was open like friday saturday sunday and i was planning on going friday after work you know doing like the the, in the evening sit essentially and then my wife's mom was like hey if you want me to take the kids friday like you guys can have a date night and of course I was like, well, clearly I'm not going hunting now, you know? So I was yeah. like, oh, okay, I'll go Saturday or Sunday. Then it was like a rare weekend where the calendar was wide open, which doesn't happen much. And I had already told my wife, I was like, hey, at some point, you know, I'm going hunting this weekend. There's nothing going on. She's like, yeah, cool, whatever. Well, then Saturday morning, her brother called and was like, hey, do you guys want to go, you know, see lights and go out to dinner and, you know, <laughs> do like that family stuff? And so I was like, oh man, I was planning on going hunting you know but then i genuinely wanted to be with my wife and my kids and then you know my brother-in-law who i just to me he's a brother and his family and so i like gave that up and so that again like happens in small ways where it's like i would much rather go to alaska for a week than leave eight times to hunt for four hours dude if that makes sense uh, it makes a hundred percent sense because that is the realization I came to this year. And I told my wife, what you just described to me is exactly my experience. And that's what I mean with having to redefine my relationship with the outdoors. I don't mean like, do I like the outdoors? Or do I not like the outdoors? Do I not like hunting or do I, do I like hunting? I do. I just need to figure out the balance and how I go about doing it for the exact reason you just said is that I've had the same experience in that same thing, late buck. Hey, hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I'd like to go hunting at some point this weekend. I'd like to go, I'd like to go. And it just keeps getting pushed off. And then I'm like, I think I'd rather just be home with my family. I, I told my wife after this season, I was like, I'm going to do something completely different next year. I'm going to set aside the time and I'm going to go. I've never been the one that like goes for a week. I've just always done the day hunts. Right. And that's because I think I've never had the responsibility of, of little ones at home. And so 
going forward, I'm going to be like, cool, I'm going hunting for four to five days and that's my hunting trip. And outside of that, sure, if I get out, great. But I'd like to dedicate that time because mentally I'm never really in the game if I just go up for a morning. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard for me to do it. Like it's hard for me to, to, oh, should I be getting back home? I'm only an hour away. I should probably just cut the hunt short. Uh, you know, you're just not patient. You're, I'm, not, I'm not focused. I'm not patient. I'm not allowing the situation to unfold. My mind is just elsewhere. And I, that's, that's taking away from the experience for me. And why am I going out there if I'm not having an experience? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You, I, I'm glad that I, I'm glad to hear that that's how you're solving that because that's how I'm going to go about it going forward. Like whether I'm still hunting an hour away, I'm still going to, I'm going to try and I think my goal is even if I'm close, I'm going to backpack in mm-hmm. and I'm going to make it so that it's harder to come home. Yeah. <laughs> Because, and just be cool with it because it's way more effective that way. Yeah. Well, I think too, there's like, and again, this goes back to like the deeper discussions on why we hunt, why, Mm -hmm. you know, for you and I, I know both of like more backcountry or backpack style hunting is beyond the hunting. When you have the three days to disconnect, like that's where a lot of the value is, right? It's not just the almost sneak away for four hours or, you know, even all day, one day. But then even if you have the whole day, like you said, you're kind of like rushed, you feel like you're rushing or need to get home or what have you versus going, I have three days, like the phone's off. Yeah. You always, I always go through that like initial, like you basically settle into the hunt, like from a mental standpoint and everything else, you truly get that disconnect and you yeah. truly get that, like, I don't know, for lack of better terms, just whatever that means to you, like deeper connection um, yeah. and fuller experience when you can step into that for some sort of prolonged time. And I've been able to do that even on like a single overnight. Like you said, maybe mm-hmm. you're just hunting an hour away, but you're still going to backpack in there. I've done that yeah. here yeah. Um, where there's like from a practical standpoint there's zero point in me backpacking in to do this whitetail deer hunt from an effectiveness standpoint. But that's how I've, that's how I'm doing it for many reasons. Cause it's how mm-hmm. I want to, because it's how I enjoy it, because it's how I disconnect yep. and because it has allowed me to hunt different areas in different ways than people do Yeah, but that like the strategic hunting benefits kind of the last thing on the list of why I might do that. Yeah. Dude, that disconnect is huge. And I've, I've felt it, you know, if no one's ever felt that, that like, I feel like something actually shifts in your brain when you're out there for long enough to where the old world that, you know, back in town goes away and this is your new world. There's like a, some sort of shift that happens in your head where like things just start getting goofy. Like you just let your hair down, you know, like everything just, it's not important anymore. And I, I experienced that the first time on an elk hunt a number of years ago before the PCT. And on like day three, things just, everything was goofy. Like everything was fun. We were around the campfire more and just having like having fun back there. Whereas in the previous two days, it was kind of serious. I'm at this thing. And, and, and then it turned into like, now you're relaxed. Your energy is different. And I experienced the same thing on the PCT where after a while, like your just energy changes. And I think it's because you get, you're like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm now adapted to this new environment. 
and here's my new world that I live in. I have your minds allowed to go in different areas. And dude, it's such a, I love that disconnect. Like that, when that happens, it's just fun, man. Mm-hmm. There's like a, there's a, to me, there's like a real <clears throat> tangible benefit to the detachment yeah. of yep. being separate from your day-to-day life helps you see your day-to-day life yeah. more clearly, if that yep. makes sense. Like when you're oh. in the middle of it, all these responsibilities and, you know, things you have to do, things you want to do, things you need to do, how you balance all those things and, you know, wife and kids and work and money and like mm-hmm. cutting the freaking grass, like all that stupid stuff. Yep. Not family stupid, but all the like little day-to-day stuff that's yep. stupid. Like you're so juggling all that all the time that not until you step away from all that can you then look back and kind of get perspective. And so you need, I feel like I need that detachment um and it makes me appreciate the everyday life Mm -hmm. when you're not like stuck in the grind and it helps you see it better and i think it helps you come back to it and go man i need to make this change or do this or do that but i personally don't get that perspective and like helpful uh, look at life unless i step away from it Mm -hmm. dude so you know how every once in a while like your rifle drop like a knowledge bomb on you or ask a question and you're like, oh man, how do I answer that? <laughs> so day one this last year, uh, I went went up for opening opening day and I'm like, I came back and my wife's like, you never really look happy when you come back from hunting. And I was like, what? And she goes, do you like hunting? And I was like, yeah, I like hunting. She goes, well, you're not really very energized when you come back. I was like, first of all, I hunt blacktails and I never see them. <laughs> So it's different. (laughs) If I saw like a million deer that morning, I'd probably be pretty excited about it. But I was like, first of all, blacktail hunter, it's just different. And second of all, I'll get back to you. And it took me all season to get back to her. And I was like, this one question was like haunting me, right? And to your point, I finally like answered her. And I was like, hey, do you know when you asked me if I I actually liked hunting? I was like, or why, why I hunt? And I was like, I think it just makes me a better person. Like, and to your point, like I get the perspective shift. I get to think about what I'm doing in my day to day. And I, I, I have a new appreciation every time I, every time I come home, I have a new appreciation for my kids and my wife and my dogs and the roof over my head and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I was like, all in all, it, the whole total package, I think it just makes me a better person. <laughs> like, yeah. That's why every season I look forward to it. And yes, there's animals and there's a lot of fun stuff that goes along with it. And it's an adventure, but that perspective is huge. And I think, dude, going back full circle, that that's the value that, that's my value system. And that's why hunting is important to me. And that's why conservation and all these things are very important to me because without them, it's just not the same. You know, yeah. I wouldn't have that. And I think a lot of listeners would probably agree with the same thing. Like right. that's where the value lands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a, I don't, I don't know that I fully grasped it. I don't know that I still do, but that thought of like a hunt and especially a backcountry backpack hunt where, you know, yes, I'm enjoying myself, but at the same time, I'm also testing myself and tend to be somewhat miserable based on conditions or what have you. Like that's the realization I came to pretty early on when I first started doing those types of trips and honestly it helped me quote unquote justify it was, you know, when I started, you know, say I leave for eight days 
on a hunt. Like when I started doing that, my wife was like at home with a young kid and then it became two young kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like, this is a very selfish thing to do. Um, and she didn't give me any grief for it, but in the end, that's where I, and I don't, this legit wasn't like my attempt to self justify it. This truly became like the reason I not even could justify it, but it became the reason I kept doing it was because I knew that, yes, I'm leaving my wife at home with two young kids for, you know, eight days, but that helps me be a better man, a better husband, mm. appreciate them more, have a better perspective on life and make better decisions for the other, you know, 357 days of the year. And I truly yep. like 110% just believe that to be fact about me and at least the way I'm wired. Mm -hmm. um, and that's continued to be the case. And that's one of the reasons that I don't want to say I've been able to keep doing this, but that I've purposely chosen to keep doing trips like that on a yearly basis is because without that, I'm a different person. Yeah. Well, I think it, I mean, in a weird way, it's good for, it's, it's good to miss someone. Yeah. It's, it's great to miss your kids. It's good for your kids to miss you. Like, it's just, I think it's good all around. I, and yeah, man, that's, and that's what I mean about, I think a lot of people, a lot of backcountry adventurers, mountaineers, rock climbers, through hikers, whoever you may be, you know, wildlife photographers, birders, I would imagine that's a common thread, like amongst a lot of those user groups. And I think I just want to meet them all and find out. <laughs> I should have a birder on and find out if it's yeah. true or not. <laughs> Talk about Let me know when that happens. I want, I want to tune into that. <laughs> I hope I'll title it. This one's for Mark. Yeah. Birding. <laughs> Backcountry birding. <laughs> Backcountry birding. Oh, man, that's a whole new thing, dude. Oh, nice. Well, yeah. Hey, what is the... I stumbled upon this, joined in, I've posted. I don't know if I've been super interactive, but you have a... What is it called? A backpack hunting Facebook group? What is it yeah, called? Yeah, man. For people who uh, want well, to find it. It was. It ended up being backpack hunting only Facebook group, okay. Uh, because no one could find the backpack hunting one. I don't know how Facebook works, but for some reason people couldn't find it. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll do only. And then it just stayed that way. Uh, yeah. So I looked. I noticed that a lot of Facebook groups, and they were like backcountry hunters, and I, I didn't really. I couldn't find anyone. It was like elk hunting or whatever, and I couldn't find any specific group that was dedicated to backpack hunting itself, which I think is its own, it's its own beast. And I feel like it, there needed to be a group for backpack hunters to start sharing knowledge and experiences and encouraging each other. And it's kind of growing. I mean, it's growing. There's over, I think, check this morning, there's like 123 people in it. And it, it's growing fairly quickly with just organically. And there's been a lot of, as you can tell, I mean, you've seen what goes on in there. Um, I think it's a great, I'm curious to see where it goes, but it's just a Facebook group for backpack hunters specifically. That's the topic on the table to get better at um, backpack hunting, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, dude. I think it's pretty cool. I've, I've already learned a lot of stuff in there um, from people and to see uh, the gear people use and how their tips and tricks and things like that. It's been great, man. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's been, I don't, I don't engage too much on Facebook and if it weren't for the fact that I have to have a Facebook yeah. account 
to do work related things, I wouldn't have one. But uh, yeah. like so far, what I've seen in that group's been cool, and I think that's. Yeah. I don't. I hope this is like uh, not just an unfortunate reality, and I hope there can be exceptions to this rule. But I feel like on Facebook, in particular, there's a an inverse relationship between quality and quantity, yeah, and so I think yeah. part of the reason yeah. it's cool right now is because there's not a a bunch of people in there with an agenda or yeah. you know a bunch of people trying to skew a conversation or whatever like it right as of now it's all been what you can tell is like genuine people who are both yep interested there to learn there to share you know not a bunch of ego that type of stuff so yeah, yeah that's Dude, pretty cool I, yeah and you know i've thought about like should i cap it at some point like at what point does it become crazy because yeah we could all talk about how cool it is to have a group of twenty thousand people in it but there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in those big groups so how do you retain the quality? Cause I just want to help people, man. Like you, I want to help people figure it out. And I want other people to help. You want other to help people, people like out. me? What do I need help <laughs> no. with Emery? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? You want another hour? <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, like you, I want to help people. Um, <laughs> and I wonder at what point is the tipping point? If it, if it ever becomes like a poisonous place where people are just bashing it, one, I'll just remove people because we can all be, let's stay classy, right? Like I'd like to bring being polite back into, into um, fashion, maybe being a gentleman or a lady, like maybe be nice to people. And if ever it becomes like a negative place, like I don't want more negative energy in my life than what there is already from like just regular stuff. So I want to, I want positive influences, my, my friend. Yeah. I think you need a, a stay classy t-shirt through Byline. Stay by land. Stay classy. Stay classy. <laughs> <laughs> Done. First one's going to you, man. All right. I wear a large. <laughs> oh, it's fishnet. Sorry. Oh, it's fishnet. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, wow. All right. Oh, extra small for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be. Uh, it'll breathe well for those yeah, warm weather hunts for sure. Dude, for sure. <laughs> Oh man. Well, that's, that was a fun hour, dude. I can't believe that was a hour. I feel like number one, we, we talked about gear. We solved all of the conservation and wildlife Every management problems in the United States. I mean, you can we, email we covered, us at, we, we covered some conservation good for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, seriously though, to wrap up, cause we could chat all day. Um, yeah. and welcome to the behind the scenes of when Emery and I hop on phone calls and don't record it for a podcast, but right. Um, you, so yeah, you have the Byland podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, many people have probably heard of that. That's easy to find. It's, are you, is it just by, what is the Instagram? But is it just Byland? Uh, it's, well, I changed my Instagram to Emery at Byland or Emery Byland. I'm I'm trying, I think I'm going to try to reduce my online footprint. Sometimes I get too happy and I'm like, this, the, the podcast needs an account. I think I'm just going to start downsizing my online presence and just put everything under Emery by land. So Emery by land. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll do that. I'll try and link to all that in the show description, the Facebook group. And then yeah. you have, and I, you know, you're not like commercial trying to sell stuff, but you have this backpacking course. Tell us uh, about yeah. that. Okay. So it's just uh, for the last year and a half, I've been working on putting a course together for beginner to intermediate backpackers. Um, with the idea being that, uh, you can kind of jumpstart your kind of knowledge base. Cause it's all, it's all scattered all over the place. So I tried to go back into my brain and download all the information, like the, the new information that 
you would want to know going into backpacking. Um, and it's basically the foundations of backpacking. So the point being that you can take, you can go through this course, take the course, and you can adapt that information to whatever style of backpacking you do, whether it's through hiking or backpack hunting, whatever it might be, or just out for a weekend jaunt, because it's all the foundational knowledge of here's what goes into backpacking. So I put it all into a course. It's all um, short video tutorials. Um, it's called Learn How to Backpack. And yeah, man, that's kind of the, the gist of it. And it's kind of based on my first, I would say my first real backpacking experience, hiking around Mount St. Helens that kicked my butt and I made a lot of poor choices, um, just didn't know stuff. And that trip, <laughs> looking back, man, it could have ruined me. Like, <clears throat> I'm glad that it didn't, but it could have ruined me big time because I remember coming home from it and being like, I am never, I don't know why I even wanted to do this in the first place. This is stupid. But I made a lot of mistakes. So I think that's kind of the origin of, dude, don't make these mistakes. Here's here's what I know now. Here's what you should know going into it. And and it's not just gear stuff. It's the mental side of backpacking as well. There's a module on the mental side and performance. Uh, Kyle Camp added to it. There's some, um, so the nutrition stuff, there's some uh, training and preparation stuff. Um, the how-tos, all, all of it's there and tips and tricks along the way. Yeah. Is there a specific like website or URL to go check that out? Uh, it's on the main, it's on, you can get to it from the main website. So byland.co, there's a little a tab in the header that says learn how to backpack. And then it's hosted, it's on, it's hosted on teachable. So it's really easy to go through. Uh, but the main landing page is there on the, on the website. So byland.co. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And if people like, you know, we didn't give you a proper introduction, Emery. Hopefully, a fair amount of folks are familiar with you, whether it's from all of your stuff that you put out, which is fantastic. You've been on the podcast, but just to give like some validity to that when because you said, like, oh, it's like birthed out of this backpacking trip to St. Helens. Like, I don't want people who are new to you to hear that and think, oh, this guy went on like a bad backing, <laughs> bad backpacking trip and then wrote a course. I mean, you've done through hikes, you've spent months yeah. on the trail, like, needless to say, uh, yeah. Or just tell people if you're like, well, who's this guy? Well, okay. you have some yeah. experience. I'll put it that way. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, I feel like the, when you hike 2000 miles on the PCT backpacking becomes really simple and you kind of get down to the essentials again. And you're like, okay, here's how everything works. And you have a lot of time to, to try new things out and no two backpacking trips are the same, but the fun, I think I do feel like the, and no two people are the same, but I do feel like the fundamentals of backpacking are the same. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like yeah. you need shelter, water, food, you know, <laughs> all that kind of good stuff. And a lot of stuff's not really that intuitive, like not sleeping on a slope or sleeping in a depression. Yeah. <laughs> like, Do you have a pooping like a module? I talk about, no, but I can make one just for you. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can <laughs> contribute some expert content. I, <laughs> just like GoPro footage or something. <laughs> uh I mean, I definitely have leave no trace and I definitely okay. get right to the point about the whole pooping in, in the woods stuff. Yeah. Um, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's, it's in there, dude. I think it's Andrew Skirka who has a, I don't know if it's an article. I hope it's not a video, <laughs> uh, but it's legit. Like, I want to say it's like six different ways to poop in the woods or something. And he legit yeah. like breaks down technique. You know, it's pretty funny. Dude, have you ever had le leave no trace on the show? You know, we haven't. Yeah. Dude, I had them on the show one time and my mind was blown about like just, it was a really fascinating interaction because yeah. I, there were things that I just, I don't know, man, 
it's just, it's interesting. The, the things they know about how humans can impact environments. Um, and it's just fascinating. Like they have different techniques for different regions based on where oh, you're really? at. Yeah, dude. Like, you know, digging holes, you know, cat holes are different or like, I remember at one point they were like, Hey, uh, pee on rocks. If you're in goat country, because the, like the salt or something. Yeah. Because mountain goats will go after urine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll end up destroying plants. You know, if everyone's just peeing on plants, oh. then they'll just start destroying plants because you're going after whatever's in the urine. They're like, so pee on rocks and <laughs> the goats will just lick the rocks. I was like, what? Wow. What? This is insane. And those people are so nice. Like they do such a great, they have these traveling trainers that it is what an amazing organization that is just out there to try and help people because you know, dude, you've seen the disgustingness of the backcountry that yeah. people, it's its horrifying sometimes uh, what people are willing to leave out there. Um, and they're just, it's like an endless uphill battle for those guys, but they're so energetic about it and they're so nice and they have such a great organization um, just for free. Wow, cool. Yeah, no, that, I've definitely had that on, I've had that idea, you know, to discuss the principles and then obviously mm-hmm. not just raw in my experience, but like you said, get someone who yeah. is from the quote unquote organization because if people weren't yeah. aware that is a, yeah. is that a, I don't know if it's a nonprofit, what that is, but essentially leave no trace is an actual yeah. a group and not yep. just a, a philosophy, if you will. And I think they're pretty well funded too. I think, I mean, that's why everything's for free. All these trainings are for free and you can become a trainer and like, it's, mm. it's really cool. Yeah. Sweet. Well, pro tip, pee on the rocks. Pee on the rocks, man, if you're in goat country. Yeah. Like or it. maybe that's like a way to hunt goats. Well, I don't know if that's baiting. Oh, it could be baiting. You're yeah. Right. Check your local <laughs> regulations. Oh, this is good. That's good. That's a good. And with that, we better stop. But while I was going to say while we're ahead, but that's clearly not the case. <laughs> Dude, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate the time. Hope you guys enjoyed that one, guys. We kind of covered a wide variety of things if you enjoyed this unscripted format let us know uh, send us some feedback to podcast at exomontgear.com if you have anything else for us maybe like a question for a future monday minute episode or something like that again just shoot us the email we'll get back to you appreciate you guys following in and connecting with us we'll talk to you soon <laughs>